Have you ever been told at some point in your life that you are not good enough, smart enough, strong enough, rich enough, or any reason really? This podcast is meant to teach, motivate, and inspire you to never lose sight of what your true passion is and to always believe you are far more capable than you think. Welcome to the Why Not Me podcast with your host, David Florence. Each week, we'll bring you a special guest that will truly motivate, inspire, and encourage you to never lose sight of who you are, what it is you're meant to do, and to offer valuable advice on what steps you can take to help you believe in yourself, achieve your dreams, and ultimately lead you to discover your purpose, passion, and drive. Probably got five things on your mind, and maybe there's one or two that are heavy. And you have these deep thoughts and like, man, if anyone had, if they really knew what I was thinking. And it leads to worry, it leads to anxiety, it leads to frustration, it leads to anger, it leads to resentment, whatever it may be. Um, but I often go back to that wisdom that my dad taught me is 90% of the things that you worry about never happen. And the other 10%, you can't do anything else about anyway. So why worry? Welcome back to the Why Not Me podcast. Today, I have a mentor of mine, good friend, and really the Yoda of all podcasts, Todd Durkin. You know, good friend of mine I met through a conference down in 2004 uh, for AFPA in Myrtle Beach. And just, Todd, before we get started, before I kind of give you your due, I want to just tell the audience a quick story about how I met you and, and how inspirational you were, and I wasn't even in the room. So I was, uh, it was at an AFPA conference, like I said, in Myrtle Beach, and right around 2004 or five, and I was next door uh, taking a lecture on nutrition. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, we hear just a loud, like, let's go, it's fired up, and you know, it's all this noise and this banging and, and, no, and jumping around, and our nutritionist is trying to ignore it, and all of a sudden, um, she just kind of stops and looks over and puts her arms up, and Everyone just starts laughing. So I'm like, what is going on in that room? So a bunch of people kind of peek around and see, see what's going on in there. And there, there you are leading a boot camp. And, uh, and then it, so right after that, I just remember tons of people in that class going, looking at the board and, and thinking like, who is this guy? And this guy's a lunatic because his energy is off the <laughs> chart. And uh, it was so everyone's kind of looking at the uh, schedule. They're like, "Once he's, when's this guy up next? Let me, let me see what he has to offer." So mm. I was one of them, and I jumped into one of your lectures. And then uh, I think you had another class on the last day that we hopped in, and we kind of just stayed in the back just before we jumped in. <laughs> so it was actually kind of funny. So that's how I met Todd. I don't know if you remember any of that. I don't remember any of that. <laughs> I remember the conference and I remember several people actually telling me that, uh, uh, that, that it was loud in there, but uh, that brings me back, uh, David, all, all the way to 0405. Those were the days where I was just getting started on the speaking circuit, uh, AFPA conference in Myrtle beach and, mm-hmm. um, man, all, all up and down the coast. It was a great conference, a great show. And uh, it brings me a lot of a lot of joy that that I ruffled mm-hmm. ruffled some feathers that day. <laughs> yeah, it was in a good way. That was definitely a good way, but mm. it definitely made an impact on on myself and, and uh, obviously many of people who who are following you now and joined your mastermind group and hear you speak. And so after finally following you for all those years and going to these events, you know, I joined your mastermind group in 2019, right around I think it was November, and I want to say it was one of your last. 
uh, your mentorship programs that you had offered at the time, just before COVID. And so I'm glad I did or else, you know, none of this that I'm doing now would be possible. And I definitely wouldn't have written the book and done the podcast. So thank you. I appreciate that. Always will. So uh, I want to just jump into your bio before we kind of get started, if that's okay, and give you uh, your just due with our audience. So in case anyone who does not know who Todd is, uh, Todd is an internationally recognized performance coach, trainer, keynote speaker, author, and life transformer who motivates, educates, and inspires people worldwide. He trains NFL, MLB, MMA athletes at his award-winning studio in San Diego, California, Fitness Quest 10. He is a two-time trainer of the year, best-selling author, recipient of the Jack LaLanne Award, and the 2018 CanFit Pro International Presenter of the Year. His Todd Durkin Impact Show motivates millions. He leads the Todd Durkin Mastermind Group for Fitness Entrepreneurs and creates impact worldwide in his talks, books, and international messages. His Durkin Impact Foundation has donated more than 300,000 since its inception. Todd loves getting people's minds right, inspiring them to be the best version of themselves, and ultimately helping people lead a life worth telling a story about. Welcome, Todd. Man, DP, thank you for the introduction, man. I, I appreciate that. I'm honored to be here. That was your mini one, by the way. Good, good, <laughs> good. We don't need any more. No, no. I need Let's some dive oxygen. in to have some fun. I need some yeah. oxygen if I read that other one. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, Todd, one of the reasons why, first of all, thank you for being here today. Uh, one of the biggest reasons why I love doing this show is because I hope and know it'll help most people out there who are struggling with self-doubt and maybe lacking in self-confidence in life and wondering if there's hope for their dreams. Having said that, I have so many questions. I know we don't have a lot of time. You got, you have about three days to cover all this. Or are you good? <laughs> um, but no, uh, thanks for the show. Uh, thanks for coming to the show, brother. And I'm excited to have you. So let's roll. Todd, let's start with kind of what you're doing now. Tell you know, our audience who doesn't know much about you or never heard of Todd Durkin. Like, what are you doing these days and what are you up to? Well, first off, um, I'm a father and I'm a husband. I mean, my role as a dad now, my kids are 2018 and 15. Right. So um, that hat I wear is number one. Uh, I'm really proud that my my marriage is 22 years deep. And, wow. um, and so it's it's uh, one that I don't ever take that for granted. And I'm, uh, it might be my, my proudest accomplishment is just as a as a parent and a, and a husband that uh, our family is intact. And we mm -hmm. work hard at that. I work hard at that because my natural inclination uh Dave is to work. I love working right. Right. and I love, I love what I do. And I have a lot of different hats professionally. Um, I'm a coach. I still mm -hmm. train people from all walks of life. I've made my name in, in the, in the industry more in training a lot of the pro athletes, specifically NFL quarterbacks, um, a lot of baseball players, UFC mm -hmm. fighters, but uh, I'm a football guy by trade. I built my, my brand, um, in the last 23 years at Fitness Quest 10 here in San Diego uh, in working with some of the best athletes. But truth be told right. is we work with people from all walks of life. Right. So I'm a coach first and foremost. Um, yes, I'm an author of four books, sp uh, speak quite a bit, um, not just within the fitness industry, but I do a lot of mm -hmm. keynote speaking. As a matter of fact, I've been doing more and more of that and I love it. Um, people that uh, have companies or they're, they're at a conference and I'll go in there and fire the, the, the crew up and the teammates up about what it takes to be your best in the game of life and how right. you use high performance mindset and mentality to tap into your deepest potential. 
And then um, I'm a podcaster. I love podcasting like you, Dave. Uh, I love my, my show. I take pride in my show and um, between our solos and every now and then we'll have a guest on. Um, I just like to be able to connect with people worldwide and to see um, what's making people tick. Uh, I'm a mindset guy. So I believe that listening um, can get into your spirit and your soul and, and prompt you into taking action. So those are some of the, the hats I wear between trainer, coach, um, and, you know, author and speaker. Right. And, and so you're, I know your background as far as like your family life is important. That's one of the reasons why I love being part of the mastermind group is because the family feel the relationships that are formed and it, nothing seems forced. And that's one of the reasons, and you're a big part of that. And so it comes across as natural, not forced. And everyone who's involved with the mastermind group is, is a big part of that and, and generates that feeling of energy mm. when you're at any of your events. So Thanks. love it. And, and so Todd, with everything you have going on, you know, the pro athletes and, and, and the normal um, Joe's that you train in, in and out of the gym and you speak, let's, let's go back to when you first started, when you're, you're young, you're one of eight. And uh, I know how that is. I'm one of seven. So, uh, you know, we, I don't know where you fall in that. I think you were the youngest, correct? In, correct. in yours, I fall right in the middle. So I was sort of the peacemaker. And <laughs> so what was that like for you growing up? What was your childhood like? How did that impact who you are today? Yeah, I mean, youngest of eight kids, uh, I was I was fighting for food. <laughs> I was fighting for everything, <laughs> clothes. It didn't matter. Uh, big Irish Catholic family, grew up in New Jersey, and um, when I was five years old, my parents got divorced. So my mom raised us. My mom mm -hmm. raised uh, eight kids on a private duty, part time, private mm -hmm. duty nurse salary, and um, I was the lunch ticket kid. Uh, mm -hmm. Didn't have a lot of money, and didn't know that when you're young, you don't know if you have money, you don't have money, you just Right. Do what you do. Um, and then at age 10, my father came back into our life and into my life. I mm -hmm. had the opportunity to get the fruits of his his love because the dad I knew was different than the dad that my older brothers and sisters knew, if that makes right. any sense. There's a 15 right. year gap. So, um, you know, growing up, I had a father starting at age 10 that poured into me and um, taught me about. Uh, all aspects of life, including what it meant to have a mentor. He became mm -hmm. my mentor, my cheerleader. He was my everything. And um, I was very, very fortunate between age 10 and 20 to have a dad who spent a lot of time with me, loved me. And, um, you know, just mm -hmm. every aspect through high school and, and college uh, on that. So it was interesting. My mom taught me about love. My father taught me about the value of time. And, mm -hmm. um, my childhood, like anyone listening in today, it, it impacts us who we are. We are growing right. up with not a lot of money. I right. was like, man, I got, developed a work ethic for me at the time. Sports was my way out. I, I earned a football scholarship to uh, the College of William and Mary in Virginia. I was a quarterback. And um, to this day, I, I, I believe I still have a, um, uh, a pretty high level work ethic. And I pride myself in, in um, the work that I do. So let's talk about that really quick, work, you know, work ethic and who you get that from. Was there a, like, would you say, was your dad your biggest mentor? I know from just knowing you and, and hearing you speak in your story, how highly you always talk about him. Was he your biggest mentor? Did you have another person in your life that kind of helped form and shape who you are? 
I'd say from a work ethic standpoint, it was really between five and 10, not having a mentor. Mm -hmm. I just was, I, I was a little, I was a little turd of a kid. I was a, I was not the nicest kid. Uh, I think I was angry, but didn't know it. Right. right. All of a sudden your parents get divorced. And, um, I was, I used to get in fights, Dave, in school. And mm -hmm. I, I was not, a, I was not a happy kid, but I started to find success in soccer at like age six. I started mm -hmm. doing really well. And, um, and I, I, I did well to the point like I was up and down the East coast into Canada, getting MVPs of tournaments. I was like, that was the one place I felt validated because I was always the best kid on the team. I played a year older on the team, a year older uh, than me. And I was dominating, but a lot of that was just toughness and grit. Um, and age, when I was in the fourth grade, there was a teacher, her name was Mrs. Whitaker. Hmm. Hmm. I haven't talked about her in a long time, but she gave me after fourth grade, my life changed because Mrs. Whitaker gave me the class guinea pig to take home for the summer. That <laughs> guinea pig's name was Crystal and Crystal, um, uh, she picked the student and she picked me to have the responsibility. I can't tell you the, the impact that that had on me as a young man who didn't really know much about love. I had a teacher who actually cared enough to give me the class guinea pig. Um, so I would say like who I am today at a young age, the work ethic, as you asked, comes from the grit of not having a father, um, mm -hmm. early on, I think, mm -hmm. of course, later on, I learned about having a mentor from my dad, because when he came back in my life, then he taught me about the power of a mentor and right. someone who had a lot of wisdom of not what not to do as what, as much to do. Right. right. And my father taught me as much what not to do as what to do. Right. And so when the first time, when I think it was when I first came to San Diego to fitness quest 10 and then you came running out of the back room with the Rocky music coming out, I'm like, all right, here we go. Everyone's fired up. You shared a message uh, from your dad on, on the board and I don't want to misquote it. So maybe you can help me with this. And I think it goes something like when you worry about things, 90% of things never happen. 10% you can't do anything about. Is that, is that about right? And that, and that stuck with me out of anything. Mm -hmm. When the first, uh, anything I've heard you lecture and speak that, that one thing stuck with me. I don't know why mm -hmm. to this day, I tell my kids the same thing, <laughs> quote your dad. <laughs> so mm -hmm that really stuck with me. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, that's one of the, one of the many lessons I learned from him, uh, because we spend a lot of time in worry, right? Anyone that's listening in, you probably got five things on your mind and maybe there's one or two that are heavy and you have these deep thoughts and you're like, man, if anyone, if they really knew what I was thinking and it leads to worry, it leads to anxiety, it leads to frustration, it leads to anger, it leads to resentment, whatever it may be. Um, but I often go back to that wisdom that my dad taught me is 90% of the things that you worry about never happen. And the other 10%, you can't do anything else about anyway. So why worry? Right. Which is harder to do than, than is said. But the point is we spend a lot of time worrying about things we can't control. And we, we dwell on things that in our mind um, could go wrong. Uh, and mm -hmm. in turn, it actually robs us of being present in the moment. So it was just one of the many lessons that I have gleaned from my father. And your relationship with your, and your mom and your dad, for you being the youngest, and a lot of stuff that I see today with, I hear parents talking at our gyms 
you know, the struggles that they deal with their kids and, and examples uh, if they're leaving the right one for them. And you, you had a, a nice, it sounds like maybe a little bit of a rough balance, but you had a nice balance of all the things that a lot of kids today lack, you know, work ethic, leadership, love, care, support uh, from, you know, if they have one parent or some kids don't have any mm -hmm. parents. And, yeah. and I admire that because the relationship that I had with my father and I, similar, my dad was the person in our family that showed us how to care, how to love and how to comfort all those things, the nurturing you think that you typically you might get from your mom. You know, my mom had a difficult time showing us that. So my father always balanced that out. So, and she showed, you know, you talk about love languages and things like that. She showed us like ways that she cared for us. It just was hard to express it how you mm. normally would expect it to. So, so it's nice to hear when you talk about your relationship with your father and hopefully anyone listening to this is to appreciate those times and really in, in take them in. So one thing that really stuck with me is, you know, when you tell your story about your dad too, as well, and he was what, 58 when he passed away of a heart attack and you were 20 playing college, yep. college football at the time at that's, William that's Mary. That's right. That's right. How did you get through that? Yeah. That difficult time in your life. Who, well, Looking back, um, I can see what got me through it. Going through it, it was a blur, right? If you've ever been through any dark times, anyone listening in, um, looking back, there is no doubt for me, faith. Um, I've I, I've always had faith in my life. I was, as mentioned, I you know grew up Catholic, going mm -hmm. to mass every weekend. Even after my parents got split. I would ride my bike through the woods. Wouldn't recommend that these days. If I solo my blue hobby with the yellow right. mags, right. you know, going to the, the, the church, it was like 20 minute bike ride. But I remember being eight, nine, 10 years old. That was the one hour a week. I actually felt peace, hmm. felt peace to this day. I mean, that's just where you can just really recalibrate and, um, you know, fast forward after my dad passed, I had a lot of anger and resentment toward God. And I, I questioned everything I'd already believed in. Um, and I, I, he was the one guy, my father, that I would never want taken from my life. So I was like, God, how, how can you take this, this man from me? Um, you know, he's my biggest cheerleader, my father, my best friend, my mentor. He's my everything. Well, looking back, it was pretty selfish, right? When, when, right. when, you, when you're of faith and you know that heaven is eternal and that's where we ultimately all want to end up um, selfish for me to say, how dare you take him to a better place? But when you're 20, you know, you're right. still a kid, <laughs> right? Like, right. Sorry, all you young yeah. folks out there. You're still, you're still young. But, um, for me, it was faith. It got me through it. It was friends. Um, I had some incredible people in my life, uh, at that time. I've always been blessed with that. Um, and it's time, time heals. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember working out. I remember I was growing up in Jersey when I went back for the funeral, I remember doing wind sprints it, and it was like eight degrees and I'm running with wind in my face. It's freezing. I'm crying. And mm -hmm. I just remember being just, just so angry, mm -hmm. but it was faith that ultimately got me through that time. And mm -hmm. now as a father, fast forward, you know, a few years now as a dad, I realized, man, I don't take anything for granted. I, I want to be there for my kids. I want to say yes um, with them. And I realize the important um, 
uh, value that men have in their sons and daughters' lives and and bless all the, the, the moms out there and especially the single moms as well. But there's something special when you have a father in your life um, that, uh, you know, you can you can really impact the kid uh, in a different way. Right. Fathers have a role right. and mothers have a role. And right. together, hopefully um, um, that uh, you can help that kid grow up and and uh, mature in a way that they're going to be able to go out into society and be successful as well. Hmm. And. And after that happened, uh, Todd, what was what was your mindset as far as like on the you know continuing your career? Is it something like, you know, hey, I, I'm done and I'm, I'm angry, or do you hear that voice, your dad's voice in the back of your head, or that you know, or also that coach or anyone's trying to help you get through this? Keep moving forward. Keep moving forward. Push forward. Are you, are you asking when I was twenty? Yeah. What kept me going? I, I really, uh, I, I was very angry. I remember being back at William & Mary the first week I was back and I didn't even know if I should be there. And I contemplated quitting school um, that, that um, semester and is driving across the country. I'm an East Coast guy. I live on the West Coast now. I've been out here for 25 years. But at that point, I was like, I just want to get in my car and I want to drive. I want to escape everything. Mm. Football didn't matter. School didn't matter. I didn't care about anything other than I just suffered my biggest loss ever. Mm. And I was a career. I, I didn't have a career. I was in school and I didn't really care because I wanted to be at that point, be an NFL quarterback. That was my, that was my dream. But at this point, I didn't even care about football. And here mm. I was competing for a starting job that spring. I remember being on the football field competing for the starting job and crying on a football field. Hmm. Here you are a college football player at a pretty high level and right. I'm crying on a football field. Like right. it just, it made no sense. It made no sense to me. I'm like, I'm trying to do it and I'm hmm. showing up, but I got tears running down my face in a huddle. Now my boys, they knew what was going on, right? My, right. all my teammates, they knew what was happening. And, and that matter of fact, I was named captain that spring because of they knew I was a junior. They right. knew or I was I was a fourth year senior. I was a fourth year senior that year. Um, they knew that there was a far deeper thing going on than just trying to win a job um, in, a, in a football team. What's your next step in your life and your career at that point? You get back on you get back to school. You're angry. You're, you're playing and you, and you restart your college clock, if you will. And then you're you're getting ready to start. What is your, what is your end of your last year or two of school like for you at that point? And, and, and leading and really trying to, like you said, your name captain, what's your, cause you're a great leader now, Todd. I mean, you, everyone who knows you will say that I'm confident in that and, mm. and, and what you help us to be better at what we do, but how, what's the next step like for you? Because everyone listening, you know, Todd had a, a two year, professional career in Europe and then and Todd I'll get into that as well but so how do you take that next step from what that tragedy to compete to getting back to compete at that high level yeah I think you just keep going you just keep showing up I, I you know I, I probably wasn't at my best I wasn't right I mean you, you're just not you're not sleeping um soul searching faith, all of it, you just mm. keep showing up. And, 
you know, there was a period even, you know, I graduated that a couple months later and I took my fifth year, I got my teaching credential and it was a big loss, right? There's a hole in your heart when you lose a parent or you lose someone close, there's a, there's a gap and there's, there's something that is missing, right? Mm -hmm. I also believe that you start to play at a little deeper level, like, Hey, I'm going to do this to honor my father for me. Right. Uh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, if, if you have these conversations with your, 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 for me, my dad, it was like, you know, he'd be proud. Hey dad, I'm doing this or, Hey, I'm going to Europe to play football. Um, right. you almost use that as fuel. I mean, fast forward, even to a few years ago, I was on that TV show called strong. Right. I still to this day, Dave channel, my dad's energy. I mm. still channel his spirit in me just because it was, it was 31 years ago. Now that he passed, I still channel his spirit with me. Uh, mm. I still think about him and read his, his handwritten letters that he wrote me every single day when I was in college. Um, literally, um, so when you have a, a major loss in your life, there's no doubt it takes a lot of time to try to recover or get back on your feet to where you can even function sometimes. Right. But eventually, I believe that leads to fuel mm. and that fuel can lead to fire and that fire can make you a better person. Because now as a father, I, I have a lot of the same characteristics that my dad had on the good side right. of the time that I get with my kids of the, of the compassion and the words he, he, he was always telling me how, how quote good I was or how much he believed in me and telling me, I believe in you. I believe in you. So those words, Hey, listen to this day, I could hear his voice speaking into me just like I'm speaking into my kids, because if there's ever a time now that kids need encouragement is now. Because right. they get beat up by social media or their friends. No one praises people enough these days. It's all about cutting people down. So right. I got that from my dad, and I've, I've, I'm, I'm doing my best to pass that on to my children and those I coach and impact as well. Yeah, and, and then it's very – I see it when I'm in at San Diego, FNSCO 10. I see it at the conferences and the people that you're, you're touching each day. So – it's impacted me. So I appreciate you and, and it's in everything that you do and, and the message that you continue to stand by each day. So I want to jump over uh, Todd to after that point. So you're in Europe, you're, you're a quarterback. Now you're there for two years and tell us what was that experience like for you? Where did you play? Was it, uh, uh, I'm envisioning I loved uh, it. The, the old XFL day with the helmet. So, but I loved it. I, I'd still, I'd still be playing to this day there if I didn't get hurt. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. No, I did. I played in Berlin, Germany. And then, okay. uh, Berlin, I went, I was in Amsterdam, France or uh, Amsterdam. And then I went to Cannes, France. So Berlin, Amsterdam and France were three cities. I played it in two years when I was in Amsterdam. Um, the guy that replaced me there was named Kurt Warner. I don't know if you know the name. Oh, no, I've never heard of him. <laughs> never heard of him. Yeah, most people haven't heard of me, but they've heard of Kurt Warner, right? Um, so, uh, and then that following year is when I hurt my back in France, Cannes, France. Um, so I loved it. I loved, I love Europe. I love Europe. I, I, mm. Every time I go to Europe, I love it. It's such a great culture. Mm. Um, I love the people in Europe. I love the lifestyle. And um, I, I would have played there for several more years if I had not gotten hurt. I blew up my back, three herniated discs, spinal stenosis, de degenerative back disease, left me motionless on a football field in Aix-en-Provence, France. And um, 
it was a tough time again in my life. I was 25 at that point. I was mm -hmm. 20 when my pops passed, 25 when my career ended. And uh, I loved Europe, but it also was a major pivotal uh, time of my life that 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 cemented that the dream of playing in the NFL was not going to happen. And mm -hmm. I had to recreate a, a dream after that uh, after that episode. So you you suffered that serious back injury. And it happened, obviously, uh, on, on, on the field. What was that? How did you deal with that pain? What was your mind like in trying to, you just, you suffered this career-ending career injury. And uh, how did you deal with that, that, that pain? Not good. <laughs> I was in a little studio apartment in Cannes, a couple blocks away from the beach, which sounds good, but I couldn't walk. Um, the doc told me, uh, does he have a back problem? The football <laughs> career is over. And uh, I had a nurse come into my condo twice a day to shoot me up with painkillers. Um, I couldn't fly home to the, to the United States because I couldn't sit up. I mm. couldn't sit upright for an hour, let alone eight hours it would have taken to get, to, to get back home to New Jersey, where I'm from. And um, so for almost two months, I rehabbed in Cannes and... Um, between physical therapy, acupuncture, getting shot up with painkillers and anti-inflammatories and everything else. It was a very difficult time. Um, number one, knowing my career was over Two, no, not knowing what's next. I didn't have a what's next. Right. I didn't have, even though I had my degree, I had my teaching credential. I'd already been to massage therapy school. In one of my off seasons, I went to massage school in Atlanta I had my certification in transitioning. I, I didn't have a what's next. Hey, I've got a job waiting for me. I was building up all of this in my tw early 20s, but I wasn't sure. And mm. I eventually got home to New Jersey and continued to rehab. My sister has a day spa in Bayhead, New Jersey. Right. And this is where there's fork in the road moments in life. And you sometimes someone comes into your life that, gives you the opportunity to go left or to go right. Right. And this gal comes up to me. She says, Hey, I understand you're an athlete and you just suffered a serious back injury and are looking for work. I said, that's correct. All of it. She goes, my husband was a, was an athlete. He's got a bad back. You can, you do house calls. I'm like, sure. I have nothing to do. And, um, she said, okay, great. It's one house street. I'm like one house street, one house street. That's that mansion on the beach. Like one house street, that's, wait, everyone knows that's Michael King's house. Right. Michael King is, that's the producer of Oprah Winfrey. Well, it was Michael King's wife, Jenna, who asked me to come work on, on, um, on Michael. And that was a major, major turning point for my life because next thing I know, I'm, I, I, I go from back rehabbing on the New Jersey shore to becoming Michael King's trainer, massage therapist, body worker, and mindset coach living in Malibu, California, living at Sting's beach house, not the wrestler Sting, the singer Sting. All right. And, I, and, and I'm, I'm training all these Hollywood people. And just six months before this, I was, I was in France living the dream, playing football. And now I'm in Malibu, California, with all of these celebrities and producers and it was like wait a second i was an athlete six months ago and now i'm a trainer walking the track at pepperdine right. like living a completely different life <laughs> right so it was kind of a bizarre time in my life doing soul searching and 
Um, I think there are fork in the road moments that when you're open to them, you got to go left, you got to go right. Which one are you going to take? Right. So at that time, in, a, in, in one of your books that you talk about the rigorous type of body work that you put yourself through mm. to kind of get your, get your body, get your mind, rid yourself of that pain. Ex- explain that and, and how that helps you. It is interesting when you look back, (laughs) when you take these roads and journeys that sometimes seem like detours, how when you reflect upon the journey, it all makes sense. You see, during this time, I was still on Vicodin. Hmm. I had six months. I couldn't get off of Vicodin. I I mean, it was my back was still jacked up and, you know, all of these different things. But here I am living in Malibu, California. I'm on Vicodin, my back, if I missed a pill, I was in trouble. I mean, I was pretty much addicted to Vicodin. Mm. And then my sister, Patty, back in New Jersey says, hey, there's a guy named Dub Lee. He does this thing called Zen body therapy. It combines rolfing, Feldenkrais, and energy work. He's doing a workshop in LA where you're living and you need to take his workshop. He lives in Hawaii, his dojo's in Hawaii, but he's got this deep, intensive work. It's physical and emotional work. Would you take it? Hmm. I'm like, absolutely. Next thing I know, a month later, I'm in, involved in this very intensive body work program called Zen Body Therapy um, and getting certified in this type of work. And I'm receiving the work and learning how to do it. And Dub Lee, I'll give him credit. He, he's now passed away. But that man got me number one, off of Vicodin, and two, taught me a form of body work that ultimately allowed me to start my career. And when I opened my business just a a couple years later, um, body work and massage was a big part of what I was doing. People think that, you know, I'm just a trainer. I was just a trainer. No, 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 no. My hands-on body work was a big part of my healing and understanding the power of that type of work and fascial work and um, rolfing and what that does. So uh, I credit Lee and Zen body therapy and rolfing and Feldenkrais and these types of work that I learned in the late nineties um, that that became a huge part of my, my career. I was doing this on a daily basis. Right. I was doing body work and massage that ultimately after I opened up my gym in year 2000, that's how I got in with the San Diego chargers. The, the Chargers used to be in San Diego. That's right. how I got in because I was doing body work with with one of the Chargers. Right. Did your view of pain change after all that? Like you, I've heard you say that you know pain's a blessing in your life. So what do you mean by that? <laughs> I just have had a lot of it. <laughs> right. Like sometimes you don't know people. You think, oh, everything's blessed. He's that. Look at that. Right. Um. As an athlete, you're taught to fight pain fight through pain. Um, And while that is true, when you're in pain, if you're in pain now, you keep going. But I've also learned from some mentors and gurus in the healing field is, how can you learn to embrace pain? Hmm. See, pain, typically there's lessons within pain. And that those lessons could be very deep. 
They could be, uh, when you really look at where pain is coming from, from, from my back initially, it was because two linebackers took their helmet and wedged it into my spine and caused a physical pain. But when you're in physical pain, that causes mental anguish. It often causes fear and anxiety and stress. And that fear, stress, and anxiety creates pain. So it's this nasty loop that's created um, pain. And I've experienced physical, mental, emotional pain in my life. Um, now I've learned to embrace it. And when it happens on some level, what's it teaching me? What can mm -hmm. I learn from it? And, and it goes against my intuitive sense to fight it, especially as men were taught to fight pain or suck it up. Right. Um, and there's a certain amount when you're in it, you got to keep going. But there's also something when you can learn to journal about your pain. If you were to read some of my, my journals, Dave, you, you'd mm. probably be shocked at some of the things I'm writing down. But I also learned that if you store it inside your fascia, your connective tissue, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual pain is all stored in your fascia. When you store pain in your fascia, that can lead to dis-ease. You don't want any pain stored in your body. You want it out. You want to get it cathartic out, whether that's crying beating a boxing bag, journaling it out, whatever it is, you want to get it out and eradicate pain from your body. Because many times when you go through pain, if you store it and you hold on to it, it's mm -hmm. going to come out in some form or fashion. And right. it's usually not in a good way, whether that be anger, whether that be through violence, whether that be through uh, fear, whether it be mm -hmm. through resentment. So I've learned about processing pain and how you can use pain as a vehicle to learning a lot about life, letting things go right. in any form of pain. It doesn't matter what, where the pain's coming from or what caused it. It's, it's not holding on to the pain that can often stifle your growth. Right. And so from, from that standpoint, and you, you go through that transition, you're in California, you're wondering what's going on, what do I do next? And you just mentioned it, that kind of led you to with the, with the chargers. So that led you to your moment of what am I going to do? And you open fitness quest 10 at that point. Yeah, that was a mistake too. <laughs> like I, look back, I look back, I never set out to open a gym. I just didn't know what I was going to do next. And my beat up old 1987 Volvo would have never made it from Malibu back to the East coast. So when I decided to go back to grad school, um, see people are like, why'd you leave Malibu? You're living at Sting's beach house. I'm not sure anyone listening in has ever been a point in your life where you're actually making decent money. I was making really good money. I was 26, seven years old, single, like life was good on the outside, but on the inside, something was missing. I just knew deep down that this isn't where I was supposed to be. I wasn't supposed to be in Malibu. I wasn't supposed to be as a, I would joke right. to my friends, like I'm the Cato Kalen of training. I was like, you know, living in this guy's right. things beach house, right? I'm like, this ain't me. So I decided to go down to San Diego for grad school and hang out for two years. So I, because I, I couldn't make it across the country in my car. So I went down to grad school for two years to get my master's degree because I personally always want to get my master's degree. And mm. frankly, I didn't know what I wanted to do next so I could figure it out. And it just, lo and behold, it's also where on day one in grad school, I met my future wife um, in grad school. So fast forward two years, um, you know, we're now in love and, and we have a, uh, a strong relationship. 
she got offered a full-time teaching job um, in San Diego at a university. I got offered a full-time strength and conditioning uh, position back in LA. Fork in the road moment again. Right. If I go to LA for a full-time strength and conditioning position, she takes the job in, in San Diego. I'm not starting another long distance relationship at age 29 right. and thinking this is going to work. So I turned that down. And for four months, I was, again, I was depressed thinking, I just turned down a really good job. I'm 29. Like, what a loser. Like, I don't even have a job. I'm flipping up mattresses, doing massage. I'm, I'm training on the side. I'm doing some adjunct faculty. I'm doing a, I'm doing all these things, but I didn't have a career. My buds were all back in, in New York on wall Mm. street, making big money. Here I am trying to figure out life at 29, 29, like, man. And then. I was like, you know what? I'm gonna open a, I'm gonna open this business. I'm gonna open a training studio in January 2000. I opened this training studio. No clients, no money, no business plan. I just was like, I'm gonna try to train people. I'm gonna train them, and I'm gonna do massage therapy. All the work I'd learned from Double E and and this, I'm gonna combine under one roof. Training and massage, combine the best of the East and the West, and um, that's what I did. And well, and and, and back then uh-huh. the fit, the fitness industry was a lot different, right? I mean, it wasn't, it's, wasn't anything like it is today. And so yeah. you had to be creative, innovative and grind it out or yeah, it would be yeah. a lot, it would be a lot worse things than flipping the floor mattresses. No, it was all big box gyms, you know, all big box gyms, huge clubs. And then I was opening up this small training studio that you didn't pay membership. The only way you, tra- you, you paid me is if you want a one-on-one training. So I right. became a trainer, one-on-one training. That's the only way it was either massage therapy, one-on-one training. Mm. Or we had Pilates too, one-on-one. That was it. And people are like, wait, there's no memberships here? I'm like, no. Right. You got to think people now, it's like a dime a dozen. There's training studios everywhere. Right. Um, no, not not then, not in year 2000. So the first couple of years, um, you know, we were setting the trend of, mm. of functional fitness and doing the things that we do one-on-one and there wasn't small group training and large group training necessarily right. uh, the way it is now. And it was one-on-one training or just you get a membership and you go work out and the gym would hope that you didn't show up. I'm like, right. that's stupid. Why would you right. hope Not that sure. no one shows up? I like people. I want to, I want to get people better. Thank you so much for joining us today. Because the great conversation Todd and I were having, we decided to make this into two great episodes. So we're going to end it here and pick up with part two next week. Thanks so much for joining us. Have an awesome day. And don't forget to share this episode with a friend. Remember, when in doubt, ask yourself, why not me? Why not now? Until next time. Have a great day.